Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Well, good morning all. It's just fantastic to be here, isn't it? Fantastic to be together. Bless you also at home. Just to be worshipping the Lord. Just to hear someone's story. The God who changes lives. Isn't it wonderful? We're starting a new teaching series today. As you will know, if you've had a chance to look through your brand new magazine already, we're looking at the book of Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. I say book. In fact, it's a letter, although you really wouldn't know that until you get to the final chapter, chapter 13. Until then, it reads more like an extended sermon than a letter. And then the author says at the end, oh, I've written you only a short letter, he says. Now, it's tempting to think he was tongue-in-cheek because there have been 13 pretty meaty chapters, but probably not. But anyway, unlike almost every other letter in the New Testament, the writer doesn't identify himself. Nor does he say who he's writing to. He just dives straight in at verse 1. He hits the page writing. So we don't know who wrote the letter. It used to be assumed that it was Paul. But that seems pretty unlikely, even if you just read it yourself in English. It's a very different style from the Paul we do know from the other letters. As I say, we don't know who it was written to. We don't know when it was written. Before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 is the assumption that we make. But that's all. But what we can say is what it's about. It's about being confident in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's achieved for us. It's about having a rock-solid basis for that confidence and about being certain as a result of your right standing before God. And that's why we decided we wanted to look at Hebrews straight after Easter. Because it's easy to look at the cross at Good Friday And we remember Jesus' suffering, and we know that Jesus died for us, and because of that, we're forgiven. And then two days after Good Friday, we move on to Easter Sunday and the resurrection, and then we're off again. And there's no time in that schedule to linger, to consider the cross in more depth. But it's only by doing exactly that that we will have that confidence and that certainty and that assurance that the writer of Hebrews wants us to enjoy, and that God himself wants us to enjoy. So do one thing for me, will you please? Over the next week, just read Hebrews. Just You don't have to read all of it. Just read chapter 7 to 10. That's the bit we're going to look at. It's not all easy. Don't pretend it is. But at least if you've read it, that's a start. And then when you come on a Sunday, you've got a better chance. You'll already be familiar with it. Do that for me, please. We're going to spend five weeks, as I say, in the very heart of this letter that we know as Hebrews. And my prayer is that it will be life to us. That together we'll understand more fully. We'll come into a place of greater confidence and wonder and freedom and security in knowing what this new covenant is that Jesus has brought us into. He's brought it to us from the love of the Father and he's brought us into it as our high priest before God. Because you see the heart of Hebrews is about this new covenant This better covenant of which Jesus is the mediator. We hear that three times in Hebrews. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Well, what does that mean? Well, a covenant is a solemn, binding agreement with promises on both sides. You see it, for example, in a lease between a landlord and a tenant. 
The lease agreement will contain tenants' covenants, the things the tenant promises he will do and he won't do, as well as landlord's covenants, the corresponding promises and assurances from his side. And on the basis of this agreement, these covenants from both sides determine how their relationship will work. It's a deal. The tenant can then live in the landlord's house and enjoy it. The landlord receives his income while the property is also being looked after. And both sides can be happy. At least that's the theory. And we have used this language of a deal or a contract in the new magazine in an introduction to this series. It's an illustration. And you see the same thought here in our template that we're using for the series. The template, there's a handshake. There's a deal done. A contract drawn up between God and mankind that both sides have agreed on. And we're going to look at the nature of this deal, this covenant agreement in the next few weeks. The terms of it and the price of it. But it's only made possible by one thing. There is a broker. There's an intermediary, a go-between between both parties that brings them together. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God... That's one party to the deal. And one mediator between God and mankind. That's the other party. And this mediator is the man Christ Jesus. See, without the broker of this deal, the mediator of this new covenant, as Hebrews calls him, the deal can't happen. The two sides remain far apart. And Jesus is the broker. Jesus whom the Father sent to us to speak and act in his name as his perfect and exact representative to bring us the Father's incredibly generous offer and his terms. But Jesus is also our representative. Amazingly, he acts on our behalf as well, as we shall see. And so through him and through him alone, the deal can be done. This new covenant can be made between God and mankind. And the nature of the deal, the subject matter of the contract between God and man is basically this. God, in his grace, wants to have a people who belong to him, a people whom he can love and bless with all his goodness and who will live their lives in intimately close relationship with him, who can actually know the almighty and eternal God personally. And to gain this incalculable benefit, man must choose to live his life in accordance with God's commands and to submit himself to him to accept him as his God. And there's a price to be paid to seal this deal if man decides to accept it. And the price is the debt that is due because of man's sin. That price must be paid for the debt to be cleared so that the way is then open for the deal to go ahead. It's a totally one-sided deal. The benefit is all to man. It's an absolute no-brainer if only he has the eyes to see it. But there is that one obstacle. The sin that stands in the way. The price that must be paid. And when we look at this template of the eternal handshake that secures our eternal future, that brings us eternal life, we should see the cross right there at that point of contact, at the clasping of the two hands. The cross is wrapped around them, bringing them together, binding them together. Without the cross that pays off the debt of sin, there could never ever be such a deal. There is one mediator between God and mankind, only the man Christ Jesus. The one who himself said that no one comes to the Father except through me. And that is what the heart of this letter is about. Now, the letter is called Hebrews. 
The assumption since ancient times is that that's who it's written to, Jewish believers, hence Hebrews. Another name for the Jews. Paul, you remember, called himself in Philippians a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, we don't know that for a fact, but there's all these extensive quotations from the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. There's detailed reference to the Jewish law and the Old Covenant established through Moses. So it does seem a fair bet. Because, you see, to get the good out of this letter and what it's teaching us, who are people of the New Covenant, God's New Deal, you have to first understand the Old Covenant, the old deal that was in force before the New one, ever since the time of Moses. So we're going to look at that now. And there's no one reading this morning, but we'll be picking up the letter at Hebrews chapter 7. I will refer to it as we go, but if you have it open in front of you, that will be helpful. We join it where the writer is talking about Jesus as our high priest. He has become a high priest forever, he finishes chapter 6. A high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now this phrase, high priest, it comes again and again in Hebrews. Jesus is described right through the letter as our great high priest. Now for most of us, I expect the associations that that phrase conjures up are not terribly helpful. For me, the phrase high priest, it brings to mind only these two images. There's either some elderly man with a long beard and some very peculiar robes and headgear and probably holding some sort of ceremonial stick and it all feels pretty fusty and religious and remote and a bit of a turn-off. Or if it's not that, then it's someone like this guy. This is Mola Ram, the evil high priest of the thuggy kilt in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, who might be a more interesting character, but he's not exactly an inspiring example. But if you are Jewish, you see, then high priest has a very immediate and a very specific reference you know immediately what we're talking about. You see, there were many priests at any one time, but there was only one high priest. And his specific privilege, his specific function, came on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. That means the day of making amends, the day of putting things right by paying for what you have done. That's atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the sins of the people would be forgiven for another year. And Hebrew 9 explains briefly what we read first in Leviticus 16. Within the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle that God had commanded to be set up, and there's a picture here, there were two sections in this tent of meeting. Apart from the courtyard, there's an outer courtyard, and then the, the tabernacle, the tent itself in the middle, has got two sections. There's an outer area where the priest would go in daily, and there's an inner enclosed area, separated off by a curtain. And that inner area is called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, where only the high priest could enter once a year to burn incense, to sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice on what was called the atonement cover, or the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where he would meet the presence of God appearing in a cloud. That was it. Once a year, only one man the high priest could enter the most holy place and meet with God and obtain an annual forgiveness of sin for the people. He went in as the representative of the people. But before he even went in behind that curtain, he had to, he had to wash himself clean and he had to make a blood sacrifice for his own sins, him and his household, before he could even begin to make an atonement for the sins of the people. And even that was just for one year at a time. And the writer says 
This old covenant, this first deal between God and his people that they had shaken on, if you like, that they had agreed together. He says, this is just a shadow of the new covenant, of the realities of what he calls a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly tent of meeting between God and man. There's a far greater reality that it points to, that is coming, that came with Jesus as the mediator of God's new deal. Everything to do with the earthly tabernacle and the earthly high priests and the earthly sacrifices. He says they're a picture. They're a foreshadowing. Actually, they're just copies, the text says, a pale imitation that nevertheless point to a corresponding and greater reality in heaven. That's why God wanted it done just this way, as he told Moses. And again and again in these chapters, he makes a direct comparison. The new deal is a better covenant. It brings a better hope through better sacrifices. The ministry of Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle is superior to that of the priest in the earthly tabernacle. Just as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, founded on better promises. And it goes on and on like this. Better, superior, perfect. So what is better? How is it better? Well, it starts with the high priests. The high priests who represented the people in making sacrifices for sin under the old covenant. They were appointed because of regulation, because of their ancestry. They were born in the tribe of Levi. They were weak, the scripture says. They were flawed human beings like the rest of us who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, first of all. They were temporary priests. Their annual sacrifices had only a temporary and limited effect. And their ministries were temporary because they died in office. But Jesus, Jesus is not like them. He's a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a quote from Psalm 110, a prophetic psalm about the Messiah. And the writer quotes it directly three times, as well as making other references to it. He's really almost obsessed with this. So, so perhaps we should at least look at it, eh? Melchizedek was priest of God Most High, it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, as well as being king of Salem. And he gets a walk-on part for just six verses in Genesis 14. That's what the writer is quoting. That's it, six verses. And then there's that verse in Psalm 110, which the writer also quotes. And then the writer says this about Melchizedek. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because Melchizedek is a bit like him, not because he is like Melchizedek. It's not that way around. And he's like him because as far as the text of Genesis goes, he isn't born and he doesn't die and he's got no parents. Not because any of that is factually true. It's just that the text doesn't mention it. So he doesn't start or finish. He's simply there. It's as if he was always there. Let me give you an example. When I was young, and even now, I loved this character. William Brown of Just William fame. Now, he first appeared in the very pre-war years of the 1920s, would you believe? And he was still going as late as 1970. And his stories by 1970 had changed and they involved TV shows and pop stars and moon rockets instead of bits of shrapnel collected from old German warplanes. The scene had shifted. He also had several Christmases during all these stories. 
And he even has a birthday in one. And yet, over almost 50 years of adventures, he never grew up. He never gets any older. In a recent article in the Times, he was described as aged 11 for eternity. And in an exactly similar way, Melchizedek appears to be a priest for eternity. And so he is a bit like Jesus. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because unlike every other priest, Jesus is a priest forever. So the writer says in chapter 7 verse 16, Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of his ancestry, he's not from the priestly tribe of Levi, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Because Jesus lives forever, verse 24, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, hear this, verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely or save for all time those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, verse 26. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins as all the other high priests did because he didn't have any. He was made perfect, the text says in chapter 5, through his life of total obedience followed right through to death. And so he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He is designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal high priest. Now, how is he the source of eternal salvation? Well, because when this high priest goes through the curtain into the most holy place to offer the sacrifice, he offers himself up to death. He is the sacrifice on the cross. It's his blood, not the blood of a bull, that is shed before God. The permanent priest makes a permanent sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's you and me. Verse 27, he sacrificed for their sins, for our sins, once for all when he offered himself. Once for all. For all the people. For all their sins. For all time. That's why it's an immeasurably better covenant. This new deal. The former regulation, that's the old covenant and the law, is set aside, verse 18, because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect. The effect of the old sacrifices was limited in time, limited in scope. They bought you another year of forgiveness. They were an external thing that couldn't touch the heart. And they brought you as a collective people a form of distant relationship with a God who appeared once a year to the high priest in the most holy place. But this superior covenant, with its better promises, with its better sacrifice, brings us a better hope, verse 19, by which we draw near to God. Sorry, could you say that again? I don't think I heard it right. By which we draw near to God. Sorry, did you say we draw near to God? We, the ordinary people, draw near to the God who's only encountered behind the curtain in the most holy place, where anyone who enters except the high priest dies? Yes, indeed, that is the better hope of this new deal, this better covenant of which Jesus has become the guarantee, it says in verse 22. Go back to chapter 6, verse 19. This hope is as secure and certain as an anchor for our souls. This hope takes us into the inner sanctuary behind that curtain where Jesus 
Our representative has gone before us and entered in on our behalf. And because of his perfect sacrifice for sin, the way is now clear. There is no obstacle for us to accept God's new deal. We can have that handshake. We get to go into the most holy place with him. This is the better hope of verse 19, by which astonishingly we draw near to God. Let me show you a picture. You know where this is. This is Buckingham Palace, residence of the Queen. Now you can go to Buckingham Palace, can't you? You can get on a tour and you can visit the state rooms and the drawing rooms and the ballroom. Did you know there was a ballroom? They're all around this part. Where are we? Just where that bit sticks out at the top corner. That's where they are. And you can go to the picture gallery as well. It's in the same area. Or you can get a tour of part of the gardens. Or if you're really lucky, you get invited by the Queen to one of her garden parties. I dropped my mum and dad off once at the palace to do exactly that. Lucky them. Anyway, there are some bits you can visit. And of course, there are other bits that are private. Now, here's a plan. Here's a plan of the part of the palace that you can't see. This is the ground floor on the left and the first floor, the bedroom floor on the right. You see number 10, if you can read that. Number 10 is the corgi's bedroom. Who'd have thought it? A bedroom, all of their own. My favourite is number seven, the junk room. I love it that the Queen has a junk room. Makes me feel a lot better that she's a hoarder too. Now, some of it will be used for state business, of course. But I wonder where the Queen goes to switch off, to relax, to be on her own, her most private part of the whole palace. Maybe it's number eight, the Queen's study, that nice bay window just near the top on the right. Maybe that's where she kicks off her shoes and puts her feet up and watches Netflix. Maybe that's her inner sanctum, the most holy place. Now, you imagine... If you had a special pass that gave you access, you could go in whenever you liked. You could drive in through the big gate, leave your car for the guards with the bearskin hats to take care of, and you go. Turn right, round the corner, turn left, and up you go till you get to the Queen's study. Quick knock on the door just to be polite, and in you go without waiting for an answer, because you have that right, special pass. And you can sit down. You can talk to her about whatever you want. No appointment necessary. Well, that's pretty much what Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 7. Because of Jesus, because of the better hope of this new deal, we draw near to God. We now have right of access to the most holy place. We're welcome. We belong there. As soon as we take hold of his handshake in that new deal, because Jesus' sacrifice of himself has dealt with our sin. So there's no nothing, there's nothing now in the way. We draw near to God. Intimately near. And we can know him as he longs for us to do. He won't run off and hide when he hears our footsteps coming down the corridor. No, no, he'll be waiting for us. He'll say, come in. I'm glad you're here. Kettle's boiled. You and God, one to one. This new deal brings us access to the Father, relationship with him. We draw near through Jesus, our great high priest. And this new deal brings us salvation, as we have said. This high priest makes atonement for our sins. He himself pays the price. He does what's required to make it right. So we have eternal forgiveness of our sins and a new eternal life with God. 
The perfect sacrifice by this permanent priest means he's able to save completely for all time those who come to God through him. Verse 25 again. Because he always lives to intercede for them. That means every time we sin, every time we need a priest and a sacrifice to be forgiven, Jesus is already there, sitting at the right hand of God, Paul says, interceding for us, speaking on our behalf. Hitting the mark is the core meaning of the Greek word. Father, you see his sin, but remember the cross. Father, remember my sacrifice. Remember my blood spilled that day. And the father replies, yes, son, I remember. Your sacrifice was perfect and complete. The price is paid in full. His sin is atoned for. And then Jesus asks the father, and the father agrees, and the father says, spirit, go remind my precious child. Go and tell Laurie again she's forgiven. Go tell Ian he's clean. Righteous before me. Go and tell Neil again how much I love him. Go and strengthen Liz to resist that temptation. Go and encourage Simon. Encourage him to stand firm in this tough time of trial. Go pour my joy into Pete's heart. My comfort into Paul. They really need it now. Spirit, will you go help them? Go and give great boldness. Help them to stand. Because you see, this high priest who is interceding for us, hitting the mark every time. The writer says in chapter 4, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows exactly what it's like to be in our shoes. He had to be made like us in every way, it says in chapter 2. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, every way, yet was without sin. He himself suffered when he was tempted, it says, so he is able to help those who are being tempted. Actually to help, it says. When we come to God through him, the writer says, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us. Grace that actually makes a difference in our time of need. That's our high priest. That's Jesus through whom we have access to draw near to the Father. Jesus who atones for our sins. Jesus who is always interceding for us. That is God's new deal that Jesus brokers for us when he sacrifices himself on our behalf. That is the new covenant in his blood. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you just for the magnitude of what you have conceived, what you have drawn up, what you have done, greater than anything we could imagine or expect. Father, thank you that you want people like us to be in relationship with you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we are not alone, we're not desolate, we're not abandoned, but we have a great high priest who gives us, who leads us into access to the very heart of your throne. Thank you, Father, that through your Son, that is where we belong. Father, I just pray you will help us. I pray by your Spirit, you will speak to us today, the weeks ahead. 
Lord, I pray you will write in our hearts the certainty that we read of in this book, that we will know and understand and grasp more fully the greatness, the completeness, the perfection of what you have done for us so that we might stand right before a holy God. Lord, in the weeks ahead, show us more and write it on our hearts for all. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.